John chapter 1, starting in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of a man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, as, and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who is, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is God. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we're kind of picking up where we left off last week as we continue to build a series of messages around the Insurgents book. That's a book by Frank Viola called Insurgents, and this series is based on that book, more on the truth that's in it, obviously. And last week, we started talking about reckoning with the beauty of our Lord Jesus. By the way, our Lord Jesus is nothing like cardboard Jesus. You know what I'm talking about, or you don't. I heard this rumor Monday that there were people trying to figure out what I meant when I said cardboard Jesus last week. Do we have any audiologists in the congregation? Is there a doctor in the house? When I said our Lord Jesus, some of us heard cardboard Jesus. And probably because I mumbled and muttered, and so I will always accept the responsibility for my misspeech. I will say that this did give me a reason to start a whole new series of sermons for the summer called Cardboard Jesus, because I feel like there's something to that. Is your Jesus flat? Is your Jesus porous? Is your Jesus one-sided like a movie poster? Maybe you're looking for flat Stanley now. You're looking for flat Jesus. So anyway, we can have that to look forward to as a result of a misstep last week that allowed some people to think I meant cardboard Jesus. But for the record, let's all say this together. Christ Jesus is our Lord. So let's say our Lord Jesus. Thank you. (laughs) I'm really glad to have that cleared up. Now, in the book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, Frank tells us in this part about the beauty of our Lord Jesus and how important it is for us to see the beauty, to be awestruck by the beauty. We talked about that a lot last week. I'm not going to repeat that, but there's more to the topic that I want to visit this week because this is the most remarkable thing about the Lord's beauty is that he sees beauty in us that we can't see. He looks at us and sees something beautiful. 
And he even assures us that through him and the grace that God gives in the Holy Spirit, you can be as beautiful to the Lord God, the Father, as he is. In other words, what we're going to talk about today is how we look in the eyes of God, both before and after we're redeemed. So we have to talk about some hard things, and then we got to talk about what makes it beautiful. Right now, that old Gaither song, Something Beautiful, Something Good, is just rolling through my head, and I'm thinking, why didn't I plan that? Well, anyway, can't sing everything or we'd never get out of here. Do you want to get out of here? Probably not. Jesus has introduced us to a cast of characters in the story that we follow when we read the New Testament that we think we know if we've been reading these stories for a long time. And you could even say, literally, if I've watched The Chosen, I've seen the cast of characters. But I suspect that we haven't always seen these characters the way we should. Because when I watch this cast of characters unfold in the gospel of the kingdom, I see myself over and over again. And so I'm going to make this very personal with you. And I would invite you, because I'm doing this, to let that be your impetus for doing the same. Because we're meant to see ourselves in the gospel. We're meant to see what the Lord sees when he looks at us. So in Frank's book, The Insurgents, he shows us a series of interpretations of common characters in the Bible, but he offers us a new lens to look through. The first character that we meet is a bridegroom who's on the brink of embarrassment and shame because somehow in all of his preparations, he overlooked something really critical. Do you remember the story? Jesus went to the wedding at Cana and Galilee, and as the bridegroom's dilemma became known to Jesus and especially to his mom, Mother Mary, there was this need to resolve the problem or the person would be ashamed and embarrassed. Have you ever been ashamed or embarrassed? You ever had that dream, you know, that one that everybody has sooner or later where you're naked in a crowd? (laughs) That's just a symbolic deep part of your mind saying, I I dread the thought of being shamed or embarrassed. And that's what was at stake for this guy. I've been there. There have been many, many times when I did my very best. I planned everything as carefully and as thoughtfully as I could. And somehow at the last moment realized that it overlooked a critical detail and it would be embarrassing in a shaming moment occurs in my thought. Many of us are raised, if I dare say it, in shame-based homes. Shame-based childhood is a very common problem. I experienced it. I experienced an excessive amount of it. I was shamed for every little thing. And I don't know why, and it doesn't matter. I don't want you to spend time thinking about what my father and mother were like. That's not the point. I can just tell you that most of my life, I felt shame acutely. I mean, it was serious. It made me feel like an utter loser because it seemed like everything I did was wrong, and somehow it was an embarrassment or a shame to somebody, and it was somehow my fault. And I didn't understand it. But what redeemed me, 
was becoming a dad. <laughs> Man, I started watching my children, whom I adored. I mean, you talk about a doting father. Laura will tell you, when my kids were babies. I was just in love with them. I was insane about how much I adored my children, and and not in a spoiling way or an unhealthy way. I think that's evident, and I just I just saw everything about them as utterly worthy of love, and I didn't see anything wrong with them. I thought they were magnificent. I thought they couldn't be any better. And and you know what? Even when I had children who were born with physical and other disabilities. It didn't diminish the love I felt for them. I just thought they were awesome. They just couldn't be any better in my mind. They just needed my help growing up to be awesome people. And they're pretty awesome, I think. And I could take some credit for that, but it turns out they're wired really well. It turns out their mother's pretty awesome. And here's the thing. Everything that I saw as worthy of shame when I was little and when I was growing up, I saw in my own children as normal and beautiful things about children. Some of you will apologize to me after church on a certain Sunday because the kid in the pew with you is noisy, and I just laugh it off. Like, don't worry about it. Kids do what kids do. You'll apologize or act embarrassed because your kids came up for children's church and they were squirmy and noisy, and I don't care. That's what kids do. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming my shame and embarrassment. Do you feel shame and embarrassment at times that's not justified? Do you need for Jesus to redeem it? He has, just like he did that day. He didn't. He didn't join anybody who gave shame or disgust or disdain for the bad decision or the lack of preparation or whatever the oversight was that caused the wedding to fall short of the needed wine allotment. No, he just solved the problem. And then he said, have good time. I love you. Next, we meet this paralyzed man Now, it's implicit in the story, and you may or may not realize it as you watch the story unfold, but there's this man whose friends bring him to Jesus, but they can't get close enough for Jesus to lay hands on him. So they climb up on the roof of the house where Jesus is, and they open up the roof and lower the man to Jesus to be healed. You remember that story? Do you realize that that man was an outcast? People in his family had dismissed him as doing or being something that deserved the punishment of paralysis and pariasis. You know what I mean? Like like people have a tendency to say that if you're different, you probably deserve it. If you have some chronic illness or chronic condition that puts you on the margins, that you probably deserve it. And the best thing they can do is avoid you. And of course, the families feel the shame and the families are embarrassed. And so they say, well, you know, he he was that child that, you know. And once again, Jesus says, I just see a person who needs help. His friends saw him the way he was. And I think this is an important thing to recognize, especially in the church, because I, as a pastor, have experienced many occasions over the last 27 years where church people have been cruel to me. They've said hurtful and hateful things 
about me and sometimes to me, but most of the time they say it behind my back. They say it on their way out the door because they've decided they're disgusted with how things are going around here and they wouldn't be a part of a church that was being run that way. And and I've had this experience in more than one place. So apparently that means the guy standing before you is either, you know, hard luck case who is always driving people away. Or it just turns out that in every church, there are people who are comfortable until someone comes along and makes them uncomfortable. And it doesn't mean that I'm judging them. It simply means that their consequence of not being able to deal with their discomfort is to blame the discomfort on me. And so I become like that man with paralysis in their mind, someone who isn't going to succeed because he's not destined to succeed. Someone who is separating and dividing us, just like those people who wouldn't help the man and the ones who were friends of the man, and they took him at whatever cost to the feet of Jesus. In those times when I've experienced being cast aside by people who I made uncomfortable, There have been friends who came through who were ready to say, I see you. It's okay. Now, this will make more sense as we go along because it turns out that Jesus has more interesting characters for us to get to know. There's this woman who has been marginalized by her society because of her inability to maintain healthy relationships You remember her as the Samaritan woman at the well, and she was a woman that Jesus saw clearly, understood exactly who she was, and recognized in her this woundedness. See, we forget that most people who are suffering, especially with societal problems, with social problems or relationship problems or community problems, most of those people are in some way or another afflicted with something. See, when I look out here, I look at a bunch of sick people. Now, don't take that wrong. But this is, after all, a kind of medical facility, isn't it? Right? This is a kind of spiritual well-being institution, and I am chief practitioner, whether I'm entitled to that or not. And therefore, when we come here, we come because we know we're not spiritually as well as we ought to be. And so when necessary, we have repair work done. Sometimes we have therapeutic work done. Sometimes we have combinations of repairs, therapy, and medical care that goes for a long time. But it's all meant to restore our souls to a healthy place. It's all meant to bring us to a place of well-being so that we can sing like we mean it. It is well with my soul. That's the point. And so when we see each other in the church, even the pastor, even the chief inmate in this asylum we call the church, remember what the word asylum really means. It's a place of refuge, right? It turns out that we're all sick. We've all come here because we're soul sick and we need help. So what Jesus does with that woman at the well is he says, I get it. 
You've had a hard time maintaining healthy relationships. It could be that you have developed an unhealthy view of relationships and what they should be like. Oh, brothers and sisters, if I could tell you how many times over the years of ministry, I've talked to people who simply don't know what a healthy relationship with another human being is supposed to be like. Maybe because they were raised in a very messy paradigm that gave them no frame of reference. Maybe because society is very powerful in the way that it persuades us to do things entirely the wrong way. We'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. But what we realized, as Jesus realized, was that he was talking to somebody who was wounded, who was damaged, and society dismissed her. That's why she was at the well at high noon when everybody else went in the cool of the morning before all the chores had to be done. She wasn't welcome. I felt marginalized like that myself. And it turns out that it's because I too am wounded, messed up, have my problems in my heart, my mind, and my body that sometimes cause me to be awkward and out of place and Somehow, Christ's love prevails. Then there's this woman who was caught in adultery. You remember that story, I'm sure, where people are on the verge of stoning her to death for what they observed as an unforgivable sin, and they asked Jesus. Actually, it was more about Jesus in this moment than it was about the woman, but she was an object lesson, and don't miss the fact that she was also someone who was replaceable. She was somebody who was irrelevant. They didn't care. They, were, they just wanted to kill her so they could get at Jesus. And Jesus saw a person of worth. He saw a person who shouldn't have been thrown away with a brutal death for presumed impropriety. And Jesus pointed out something that we just talked about. Hey, anyone here who has never sinned, take a rock and have at it. And what do they do? They walk away. They all know they're guilty. They all know they deserve death for the impropriety that they've lived. It turns out we have all been guilty of adultery, whether literal or figurative. And I feel sure that I can say this about everyone here, because at least in the figurative sense, adultery as it is viewed in the Bible is first and foremost an offense against God. It starts with the Garden of Eden. It starts with the very essence of sin. God is in this perfect relationship with you where you are utterly and completely in love with God and utterly and completely trust God. And then the distrust enters in. And that's where the adultery begins. And adultery in every form it's known always starts with that nugget of distrust. And distrust is almost always driven by selfishness. I don't trust you because I want something from you, and now I'm starting to question whether I'm going to get it. That's why when I talk to young couples before they're married, I always say to them, listen, it's, it's really about many little things. The reason men ought to put the seat down is because it's a little thing that says, I care about you. That much, you know, the reason the woman should just smile at some of his idiosyncrasies is because they don't matter that much. And they just see past it to this person who's dedicated to them. 
in a uniquely male way. See, adultery always starts with putting our self-interests ahead of others. And that always starts with God. And then over time, it trickles down to even the most precious relationships we have with other people. And Jesus just pointed that out. He said, hey, anybody who's not guilty of sin, feel free to kill this woman. And they all knew better. In fact, they took a lot of joy in talking about how sinless they were, not because of their innate righteousness, but because the righteousness that they fabricate through their consistent religious activity. They thought they were righteous, not because it was true, but because they had kind of sugar-coated it or wrapped it in colorful wrapping paper through their religious activity. And that fooled everybody that was like them, but God sees what's inside. And then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. Then there's this woman who is suffering with a chronic illness, and she is not allowed to be out in public because she's unclean and let alone in contact with a revered rabbi. But she sneaks a tiny little touch of the hem of his garment, which he was aware of, interestingly enough. And he was on his way to raise a child from the dead in that particular moment, but he stopped and he recognized her. Do you know how many of us are separated from each other because of physical maladies that we don't really have much control over? That poor woman had no control over her condition, but people acted like it was her fault. Is it really her fault that she has a chronic illness for which there was no cure in that day, and it made her ritually unclean? And is that any way to treat another person, especially one that's sick? There are people in our midst every Sunday. There are people in our midst everywhere we go who are marginalized by society because they have physical traits that separate them from the rest of us, and we blame them for it. Listen, in our society, we have a lot of people we encounter everywhere we go who have physical problems that we look down on them for. Morbid obesity probably being the number one problem in our society that people are always judging each other for. Well, you know, there are different degrees of fat. (laughs) And it turns out most of us are fat. Let's just admit it. Because if I can't say that, then I can't say we're all sinners in need of redemption. Right? And it turns out that some of the fattest people are fat in their head. There's more fat than muscle up there, if you get what I mean. And what does that mean? Why would I say such a callous thing? Because we judge each other for things that, well, you can't really control. (laughs) My wife will tell you that I could snore like you wouldn't believe. Man, I could bring the walls down. Fortunately, I recognize that I might have a health problem that I could manage with the therapy that I have through my CPAP machine. And so, like Darth Vader, I sleep quietly every night going, but back in the day, if people said, my gosh, Dad, would you stop? You know who those people are, obviously. I'd say, I don't know what you're talking about, because I was asleep for the whole thing, sort of. Turns out I wasn't sleeping very well. Men and women, if you've been diagnosed with sleep apnea and you've been inquired or you've inquired about using a CPAP machine, I've been using mine since 2001 and I have no regrets and I can't imagine sleeping without it. So here's a PSA for you, public service announcement. Use your CPAP machine for Pete's sake. 
Don't rip it off in the middle of the night and say, I can't stand this thing. Keep trying or you'll be dying. Finally, there's this person who is despised by his own people because of his job. He's a tax collector. He's made a choice. He's chosen his side. You know, he's picked the team he wants to work for, and he's completely and utterly dismissed, not only as not part of society, but worse than that. But Jesus sees value in him. I love the way Jesus deals with Matthew, the tax collector, because he says, hey, I'm coming over to your house tonight, and I'll be bringing several of my friends. I hope you have a nice table set for us. And Matthew's like, what? I mean, the party's not that big a deal to him because he's got money and he's got the room, but, but who, 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 what? This, this rabbi just invited himself over to my house? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know what I do? How many of you, like me, have felt that sense of unworthiness? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know me? Why would he want anything to do with me? And that brings us to the whole point of today's message. You see, he does know exactly who you are because it's who he is, it's who he is, it's who he is, because it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are. Do you know how hard we work to get that figured out? I mean, we're men and we could solve big problems. You know, we can really fix a lot of big problems, but getting the 20 or 30 men to figure out who was supposed to sing the first who you are and who was supposed to sing the second who you are, that took some work. But we did it. We did it. He sees you, this Lord Jesus of ours, for who you are, exactly who you are. See, when you look in the mirror, whether you believe it or not, what you're looking at is a filthy, muddy mess that's streaked with the channels from your tears of shame. And you see someone that would say, like Matthew, doesn't he know who I am? He knows, and he loves you. He knows, and he loves you. And the problem is, is that whether you know it or not, you've been so saturated with the message of God's enemy, and it's become so ingrained in our society that we don't even realize how misled we are. Because society, you know, I'm going to watch some football this afternoon, and there are going to be some very expensive advertising messages that are going to try to convince me in a minute or less who I am. And what I deserve, man, if that isn't the voice of Satan, you know, he's the one that told Adam and Eve, you know, don't you know he's lying to you? You deserve this. You're entitled to this. The enemy wants you to believe that the Bible, truth in love from God, the heavenly father who created you is your enemy. The enemy wants you to believe that he's not the enemy. He's acting in your behalf because he wants you to get what you deserve. How many commercials can you watch? You know, like I like me TV, you know, those old shows, really old shows, Adam 12, you know, that kind of thing, right? And the commercial comes on and says, you're entitled to this and you deserve that. Act now. 1-800-GIMME, GIMME, GIMME. 
<laughs> but Jesus sees you under all that crud and crust that's accumulated, all that filth and mess that the world just keeps splashing on you like you're walking down the narrow road to Jesus and it's rainy and slushy and muddy and all the enemies driving by in their cars are splashing you with filth and muck and he sees you under all of that. And he says, come home, come home. You see, he, Jesus explained it all so beautifully in what what I consider the greatest of all of Jesus's parables, the prodigal son story. You know what a prodigal is? I mean, honestly, most of us hear that and we go, well, it's that kid. <laughs> yeah, but what is a prodigal? Who came up with that word when they translated this from the original languages to English and someone said, we'll call him the prodigal. What were they thinking? Well, you know, me being a word nerd, I checked it out. Prodigal is a word that means someone who is self-absorbed. The prodigal son is self-absorbed. He's more interested in what he wants, what he deserves, what he's entitled to, and he wants it now. While his flesh is young and healthy and ready to redeem all of that as readily as possible. And then, of course, he gets to a point where he can no longer survive because he's squandered it all. And he remembers his father's love and his father's house. Do you understand that Jesus is telling the story of God, the heavenly father, who sees you on the horizon and at the risk of shame and embarrassment, lifts up his garment so that his legs are exposed, but he wants to run even faster to intercept you. And for what purpose? So that he can kiss you and hug you. And then Jesus said, at that moment of redemption, when you've repented and you've embraced your heavenly Father's love, all of heaven rejoices. All of heaven rejoices. Can you imagine that? You know what it's like at the hospital when everybody's working and there's hundreds of people there and then you hear the, the little song play that tells you a baby was just born? And we all stop for a second to go, a baby was just born. Heaven says, that's mild. Heaven says a soul has just been born again and all of heaven stops and there's a party. Imagine that. And that's you when you let him see you for who you are and he invites you to be altogether that. This beautiful, loving, gracious Lord sought you and bought you with his redeeming blood so that he could invite you home so that he could have a party in your honor, so that he could kill the fatted calf and have a feast in your honor, so that he could put the signet ring on your finger and say, this is my son and daughter whom I am very pleased with. Why? You didn't do it. You did one thing right that got you that ring, and it was, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for being my redeemer. Thank you. I accept your love and your grace. I see that you see me in a whole new light, and I want to become that person with the rest of my eternal existence. And then you're on the way home. It's just like that. I got to wrap it up. 
We're going to go to the Lord's table in a minute, and we're going to ratify this in a certain way that I hope is very meaningful for you. But for now, let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for the word that redeems us, for the one who is our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for seeing us for what we are. Help us to resist the enemy's message and the vile temptation that is built from his contempt for you. He doesn't really want you to get what you deserve, people. God wants you to get what you deserve. The enemy just wants to hurt the Father by destroying you piece by piece. And so join me in saying, please, Father, redeem me, restore me, fill me with your Holy Spirit, make me a new and better version of myself, sanctified today, but hardly ready for the sanctification that is to come. Amen. Amen.